All right, if you would grab a Bible and turn on or turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're in our series, Blueprint for God's House. And we come to a fun passage today. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. God's Word says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Everyone take a deep breath. Look at your neighbor and say it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word, even words like these. Your Word is inspired, it's holy, it's profitable, it's helpful. God, we need Your help in these moments that we have together to understand these words that are not tangled up because You didn't say it clearly but are tangled up because we are sinful and hate authority and our culture is what we value more than You oftentimes. So God, we ask that by Your Spirit, You would help us to understand these words. In Jesus' name, and everybody said? Amen. So, we've been in this series walking through the book of 1 Timothy And we've been looking at it through this lens of it's a blueprint. So this is God's blueprint for His house. Paul is helping the church in Ephesus to understand what the church is supposed to look like. And we've been asking ourselves this question each and every week during this series. And here's the question that I think the whole book of 1 Timothy is helping us to ask ourselves, which is this. Am I following my desires or God's design? Am I following my desires or God's design? Whose blueprint am I following? This question is important to keep at the forefront of our hearts and minds, particularly when we come to a passage like today. Because What our minds are drawn to, even when we read a passage like this, are the restrictions or the negative sides and not even the positive elements in it. I guarantee you if we did a straw straw poll and went across the spectrum this morning and asked what stood out to you from the passage, it's probably the negative elements and not the positive elements. And that's because of sin and the fallen world that we live in. So, for example, if I were to instruct you on how to get home in your car today, and I were to say a phrase like this, drive carefully, don't speed or pass on the double yellow line, and arrive safely at your destination. Most of us, what we hear is don't speed and don't cross the yellow line, right? We don't hear the wonderful admonitions of drive carefully, 
right, and arrive safely at your destination. Our minds immediately go to the negative. That's because we are going about a renovation project. If you go all the way back to Genesis, which we will a bunch today, God's original design is that we would be in relationship with Him. And in Genesis 3, sin enters into the world, and as a result, negativity, as a result, disillusionment about God and what He says comes into this world. And now when we look at the commands of God, we see them as limitations and not love. And so the result of that is we need to be renovated. Our hearts need to be renovated. Our minds need to be renovated. And we just come to a passage, we happen to come to a passage that it's like the day in a renovation project where the walls get torn down. And things don't look like the finished project. They don't look like the way that we'd like them to. And so we come to a passage like this, and what Cheryl said to me in the coffee shop this morning is true. If you look for a disagreement, you'll find one, right? If we want to look for what we don't like about the passage, I guarantee you you're going to find it particularly today. But if we come to the passage with this understanding that sin has broken our world and that God loves us and He's seeking to renovate and set things right because He loves us, then we come to a passage like this with different eyes and different hearts. And so, we all have desires. We don't enjoy being told what to do. It's the problem of humanity We don't like authority, and so we have to recognize that as we start this passage this morning. So Paul is writing to a particular audience. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and they have particular issues. And we're going to see this morning that those particular issues, those particular problems, are going to have universal truths that don't just apply to Ephesus. But... There are specific things that do apply to just Ephesus. And so we're going to look at that this morning. When it comes to difficult passages in the Bible, there's several things that I think it's important for us to understand before we even jump into the text. It's not just important because this is a hard passage, but this is an opportunity for me as the pastor of this church to equip you to understand God's Word, including words like this passage that are difficult to understand. When it comes to difficult passages in the Bible, particularly ones like this where you see the early church fathers all the way up until today, commentators and theologians, where there is wild disagreement, it's important that we do three things. Number one, that we approach difficult passages with charity. Charity. You can write that down. This is a great day to take lots of notes because we're going to have lots of points. I was going down through my notes and I was like, there's three points here, three points here, four points here. So it's important that you take some notes. I'm going to do my very best to kind of untangle this for us. Number one, we approach passages with charity. Remember what Paul has already said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that the point and the purpose of his charge in this whole book is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You see, love for Christ includes a love for His truth, whether we like it or not. And so we can never treat anything in God's Word as inconsequential. We have to see it as Christ's command and His love towards us And it's important that we embrace God's Word with charity and love because this is what Jesus tells His disciples to do in John chapter 8, verse 31. That those who abide in Him, they do this from a place of charity, of sincere love. And we can do that in a way that actually extends charity to others who we disagree with. So, we cannot let our love for God... Lead us, though, to doctrinal minimalism. Which means I'm going to reduce what I believe about God 
to the lowest common denominator so that I don't have any disagreements with anyone. That's not charity. But on the other side, what is also not charity is this idea of locking ourselves up in groups with the people we only agree with. That's not charity either. Where we have maximal agreement and we're separate from others and refuse to acknowledge others as Christians. Now this is a particular topic about women in ministry where people do this. Later on down in the sermon, we're going to talk about some theology perspectives like complementarianism and egalitarianism. Here's what both of those camps do. They say things like this. Limiting women means you're not a Christian. You're not orthodox. And then others who say valuing women and allowing them to have leadership in the life of the church is, means you've walked away from the faith and you're not Christian either. So we don't want to do either of those here at Mosaic. We want to choose charity, understanding that, for example, when it comes to verse 12 that we read here, there are 12 interpretations of that verse. When you go to a passage like Hebrews chapter, um, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, there's 18, which means I'm going to choose charity. I'm going to be open hands with this. Number two, humility. So we choose charity, we choose humility. The purpose for discussion should be to gain a better understanding of a particular topic, not to prove we're correct or boost our egos. This is embracing the heart of Philippians 2, 3-4. J.R. shaking his head because we have a mentor who beat this verse into our heads. Right? It's this idea of placing people's needs higher than our own, Right, seeing them as more significant, in a way that allows us to listen to different perspectives. We may not agree with it, but we can listen in humility. So we choose charity, we choose humility. I want to tell you a story about a lady named Ann Jester, who was a member of a church that I planted. I planted a church uh, called Aletheia in, uh, at Old Dominion University, and Ann and her husband um, Bruce came to our church, and Ann came from a background that was egalitarian. In other words, uh, women could be pastors, and she came to our church, she went through our membership process, and as a result of that, she said, I disagree with your theological stance. Can I be a member? And so we had this clause in our membership covenant that said, you can as long as you choose to not be divisive. So Anne and her husband were members of our church for seven years, I think it was, and they lived that out. They chose to not be divisive. They submitted themselves under our teaching. She did not seek positions in our church, knowing that some of those would be limited to her. And she lived in a way that sought to be humble. And that's what we want to do as followers of Jesus, particularly when it comes to passages that are hard for us to understand or there's disagreement. Charity and humility. Lastly, open ears and open hearts. Why? We are open to listening to other perspectives because there's wide disagreement. And there's disagreement among people who are considered orthodox. People who are Christians, who love Jesus, who have not shipwrecked the faith. They are orthodox. They believe that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. They're not questioning that. Right? They believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God. Right? These are foundational doctrines. But when we come to something like this, we want to have open ears. In other words, we want to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And we have open hearts. This is what Anne was a picture of in my life. She had open hearts to listen to what we had to say about the issue of women in ministry. And she even came to the place where she said, I value what you say. So this is what we're after here at Mosaic, is that we would be charitable, humble, open ears, open hearts when it comes to a text like this. One last thing before we jump into the study this morning. When it comes to understanding the Scriptures... 
So that's our behavior, but when it, when it comes to understanding the Scriptures, we need to understand that context is key. So number one, context is key. So when we come to a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8-15, through 15, we have to read it in the surrounding context. Paul is writing to a church that has specific problems. And we're going to see some of those here this morning. This keeps us in line with doing what is called proper exegesis. We read the text in its context. We don't pull it out of context. I was teaching our young adults this this morning in our Bible study down at Espresso Bar. And we were talking about Jeremiah 29.11. That's the verse that's almost always ripped out of context. It's put on a t-shirt. It's put on a coffee mug. And we don't understand its context that's written to a people in exile who have sinned against God, right? Who he is delivering truth to them through the prophet Jeremiah about their future and he may not be speaking directly to you and I in that moment. So we have to be careful to remember that context is key. Number two, we have to recognize our own presuppositions. So when we come to this text, I guarantee you if we did another straw poll, what do you think about this? And we went across the room this morning and we got answers from every single one of you. We would find we all have a perspective that we bring to the text. This was incredibly discouraging for me this week as I read commentaries. You could immediately see that the commentator was trying to prove their point prior to actually saying this is what the text says. And if we're not careful, we all do that. So, we have to recognize our own bias, our own presuppositions when it comes to God's Word. Lastly, Write this down. This is so, so important. If you don't get anything else from the message today and you disagree with me totally, remember that we interpret each Scripture in light of all Scripture. That's what we do. So we, we don't pull verses out of context. We have to in, interpret Scripture in light of all Scripture. So we're going to walk through this text and I'm going to try to do that a little bit by little bit with us and hopefully not run out of time. All right? Our big idea for today is this. There is a design for both men and women in the life of God's house. There is a design for both men and women in the life of God's house. So this passage does not just appear out of nowhere. It feels like that, even as we jump into it this morning. It feels like, wow, Paul took an abrupt turn here, and he says, I desire men to pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. I desire that women should do certain things and not do certain things. It feels as though he's making a hard right turn. But it's not. And we're going to see that this morning. So, point number one, we see some congregation corrections. We see some congregation corrections. The first correction we see is Paul correcting men. And I get an amen from the ladies, right? He corrects the men first, right? That's good, Sarah. You can go ahead and say amen right there, right? He corrects the men first. In fact, he's been correcting them since chapter 1. He actually calls out specific individuals, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have been false teachers and who have presented this environment that's quarrelsome and angry and argumentative, and he's correcting that. He says, pray, men, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So this environment, the context, is there is a group of men who are quarrelsome. They're starting fights. And he says, don't do that, but rather pray, lifting up holy hands. Now we had a great little interchange at our small group this past week about lifting holy hands. In fact, I got to the very end and I asked Bill to pray, and I said, go ahead, lift up holy hands, and he's like, he gave me a little argument as to why he doesn't do that. And, and so, what does this phrase mean? In every place that men should lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So, what Paul is correcting in this particular house, in Ephesus, this church, is that the posture of humility before God 
should be there. So that's the hands. But he, he ties it to holiness. So in this culture, they would have understood this as holiness being tied to the ceremonial washing of hands. So when someone would go to the temple, they would wash their hands multiple times before they would come into the house of God to worship God because they wanted to be pure, they wanted to be holy. They used their hands to do all kinds of things. We don't need to describe all the kinds of things. You can imagine all the kinds of things that they would do, eating food, all kinds of other things. We won't talk about that. And he's saying, your hands, your mouths, rather than being used for anger and quarreling and disagreement, should be used to pray and intercede to God for other people. So we're seeing in 1 Timothy, and we'll see even more in the weeks to come, that there were all kinds of disputes and arguments, and all kinds of false teachers, including women, and they were provoking anger and quarrel and disagreements. And Paul says, don't pray before God when you've got conflict with your brother's and sisters around you. This is the same thing, so context, now we see Scripture with Scripture. This is the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5. If you have a disagreement with one another, go and resolve your conflict, and then come and offer your gift. In other words, there are rules for the house of God, and it looks like engaging in conflict resolution so that we don't come into the house of God with anger and quarreling. And so Paul is correcting this. So prayer before God is artificial if there's not peace with others. This does not just apply to Ephesus. This applies to all of us. So this is a universal truth. So Paul's not just saying to the Ephesian men, hey, pray with holy hands, without anger and quarreling. He's saying to every Christian man across the board and woman, do not have conflict amongst one another in such a way that you come into the house of God and you're pretending as if everything is okay. We lift up holy hands. In other words, we deal with our disagreements and we have clear space between us and God. So here's a question for us. As we gather together, is there any deliberate sin of anger or quarreling in your life that you're holding on to? Are you harboring anger or bitterness or a disagreement between you and someone else? Do you see how the truth is applied specifically to the context and now it's tied to you and me? question is, do we come to that kind of message with humility? That's what Paul wants this group of people to do. So he talks to men. He corrects them, and he says, if you're going to pray, if you're going to interact in the life of the church, do it in a way that is holy and not formed and fashioned out of quarreling and anger. Number two, correction for women in the church. He says, adorn yourself in a respectable apparel with godliness with good works. So Paul is correcting specific problems in Ephesus. So if you read that and you were like, my hair is braided today, I guess I'm in trouble. We're going to untangle that and show you that's not Paul's point. So Paul is speaking to specific problems in Ephesus. And there are some universal truths here. So specifically, Ephesus was filled with false worship and idolatry, particularly in the area of prostitution. So there was a temple to a god, a lesser god named Artemis, and every evening the temple prostitutes would come out with braided hair full of gold and dressed in such a way to attract men into that house of worship. And they would worship in sexual ways. So Paul is correcting this because he's saying as followers of Jesus, we should not dress in a way that draws attention to ourselves as the object of worship. So both men and women, I think this applies to us. This text in the Bible is universally helpful 
because the question is, is what I'm wearing honoring God or is it a distraction that is drawing attention to myself? This is hugely important because we live in a world as a result of the fall and sin that teaches women to objectify themselves, say, do whatever you can to draw attention to yourself as beautiful, as worthy of attention, but equally we live in a culture because of sin that teaches and trains men to do that to women, to objectify women based upon how they look, based upon what they wear, based upon what they look like. So both men and women, when you are deciding what you're going to wear, are you asking the question, is this what makes me look best? Is this what makes me look most attractive? Is this what will draw eyes to me? Or are you asking the question, what can I wear that best expresses a humble heart that wants nothing but to worship God? That's a hard question. We can immediately feel the tension because that is not the culture that we're raised in. We're raised in a culture that says, make yourself an object. And how you answer those questions will change what you wear. So Paul doesn't just correct what prayer looks like for the men, but he points to the positivity after it. An environment that's not filled with quarreling, that's holy, that honors God. And he does the exact same thing with women. He says, don't wear things that draw attention to yourself and draw attention away from God. Because God is worthy of our worship. Once again, I take you back to my introduction. We hear the restriction, don't speed, don't cross the double yellow line. And what Paul is communicating is there's something greater at stake here. It's an environment where there is unity around the fact that God is worthy of our worship and we don't want to distract away from that. So the question is this, how can I draw attention to the glory of God even in what I wear? So, we have to understand this because There are people who are Christians, we want to approach them with charity and humility, who come to a text like this, and they actually form whole denominations around not having braided hair, wearing certain things, and not wearing certain things. And I would say they miss the point. They miss the point of the text. We can be charitable, we can be humble, but we can also use proper biblical understanding to say, I disagree with that because that's not the point of the text. All right, so those are the corrections. Let's go to the role descriptions. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So let's take that one first. Everybody take a deep breath. It's been a lot already, okay? So Paul has corrected some specific issues which leads to him talking about some role descriptions. So he specifically, in context, addresses this because if you go forward in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, he actually gives us a clue why he talks about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, there were false teachers that were teaching that women should not be married. And that they should never get married. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, that some of the young women were buying into that, and instead of getting married, they were gossiping. So that is the context in which Paul is giving this instruction. And when you turn over to 2 Timothy, Paul is also writing the church in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there were a group of women who were standing up in the assembly and giving false teaching, and they were actually usurping or undercutting the authority of the elders and living according to all kinds of worldly passions. So that's the context in which Paul gives this instruction. So remember, we interpret Scripture in light of Scripture. 
So there is a text, a part of this text, that's a culturally relevant, specific issue that changes culture to culture, but then there is central revelation that never changes. There's both of those in this text. So just like in the previous one, don't wear braided hair with gold, that was specific to that culture, but the central revelation is don't attract attention away from the glory of God. Same thing here. There is a central revelation that never changes. And to understand this, we need to understand three simple things from Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Chapter 1 through chapter 3. Here's those central truths. God created men and women. God created men and women with equal dignity. Everybody say equal dignity. Equal value. Equal worth. Neither is superior or inferior. So, to demean women is a sin against God and is to not see the value of their creation. And so Paul is not in any way falling into a trap where he's demeaning women and saying, I want them in a lesser role. We're going to see that that's not true. Number two, God created men and women with complementary roles. Complementary roles. In other words, men and women are different. Can I get an amen, women? Men and women are different. They're distinct, not in value, but in role. And those roles complement each other. They complement each other. Number three, man wasn't complete. This is your amen, ladies. Man was not complete or completed until a woman was created. Right? Genesis 3. It's not good that man's alone. I will make a helper fit for him. In other words, he is not complete. He's in trouble. He doesn't, it doesn't, life does not work the way it should until a woman came along. In fact, the Genesis account, he goes and tries to find one. And he doesn't find one. Right? I, I, that's weird. That's a crazy passage when you think about it. When you go down the whole rabbit hole, like, nope, nope. And then he's like, oh. And then God creates a helper fit for him. This means that they both have value and worth, and one is not better than the other. This also means that it's not good for man to go about life and leadership without her input. Can I get an amen, ladies? And bringing her perspective and value to the table. So this is by God's design, and it's not only God's design, it reflects God's nature, and this means we need to understand it in light of the prohibition here in verse number 12. So let's read verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So there's the prohibition. We don't like it. We immediately throw our hands up. Some of us grew up in a setting where we're comfortable with that. Either way, we're going to choose charity, humility, open ears, open hearts. Paul, in other points of the New Testament, encourages women to actually teach. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Romans 16. We have this whole long list of women that he actually celebrates in ministry, that they're valued in ministry, that they're doing ministry, and they're doing it well. So Paul is not saying in a blanket statement, women should never, ever, ever, ever teach. That's not what he's saying. This means we can learn from women like Beth Moore and Priscilla Schreier and Christine Kane. The question is the setting. The setting. Paul is saying that a woman should not teach or exercise authority and this is in the context of what he's going to say and what we're going to look at next week in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the context of being an elder, pastor, or overseer. We'll unpack all of those next week. But what's interesting is when you read chapter 3, you realize that that also applies to men. Men who are not gifted to teach, who are not called to teach, who are not a by the body of other elders and members in the church as being an elder that don't have those qualifications should not do that either. So this is not just to women, but it's also to men when we see it in the context. When it says that they should listen or learn quietly, 
there is something beautiful in there because the culture would have told women they weren't allowed to learn. And he says they should learn with quietness and submissiveness. In other words, they should submit to the pastors, elders, overseers in the life of that church and should not do what they were doing in chapter 4 and chapter 5, which is usurping the authority of the elders and the pastors and the teachers. So this text is saying that women should listen attentively with a teachable spirit, God-ordained leaders in the church when they are teaching the Word of God. So verse 12 is essentially saying that women should not lead as elders, pastors, or overseers in the church. So the question then is, does that mean that women can never be a part of any leadership position in the life of the church? I don't think so. I don't think so because in the rest of the Scriptures, including the New Testament, Paul talks about women exercising skills and abilities and leadership in the life of the church. Paul says in other places in the New Testament that women should lead. Paul roots his argument not in practice or fear-based societal norms, but rather he roots it in creation. God's design. Look at what he says in verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So I was talking to a friend of mine named Rick, who's a pastor. He's been a pastor. I've told you about him for 30 plus years. And I said, hey, Rick, I got this passage. And he said, good luck. So we started having a conversation about women pastors and egalitarianism. And he said, you know, for years, I wanted to land there. He said, but I come to this text, and Paul does not root his argument in cultural norms. He roots his argument in the creative order. And he's like, there's just no way around it. In other words, Paul roots his argument about why women should not be pastors and elders and overseers, not in whether it's culturally appropriate or acceptable. This is really, really important for us because you and I are confronted every day with whether or not we are going to believe that this word is true. And what we often do is we try to somehow marry what we're taught in our culture with what the God, God's Word says. And this is a perfect opportunity to see the fact that Paul does not root his argument in whether it fits in the culture or not, and whether it was a patriarchal culture, which it was, where men were the center of everything and women were less than. In fact, they were less than their oxen. He doesn't do that. He could have done that, but he roots his argument in the creative order. In other words, God has designed roles for men and roles for women. So he does not root it in chauvinism. He roots it in God's design that was good. It's good in the home. It's good in the church. It's not just good for you men to not be alone. It's also good for you women to understand from a biblical perspective what God desires. That's all I'm going to say about that. You might be disappointed, but that's how far we're going to go in the passage because next week we'll look at chapter 3 and the office of elder and overseer and what that means. Verse 15. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to give you three simple words. Only God knows. I'm not copping out, but only God knows. I got that from David Platt. He was talking about this passage. He came to this and he's way smarter. Pastor's a way bigger church been super effective teaching the Bible for many, many years. He came to this and he said, I don't know what this means. Most commentators skip it. They skip the verse. I came to verse 15. I was like, what do they say? They just skip it. There are a lot of commentaries that skip this whole section. In fact, when I was pastoring Aletheia, I have to confess to you, when I preached through 1 Timothy, I skipped it. 
I skipped verse 8 through 15. Basically, the idea here is there is a deliberate reference to the woman and the fruit of her offspring, through that, the Savior would enter to the world. John Stott says this, so because I don't know, and only God knows, we'll at least go to John Stott. He's a really great pastor, theologian. He says this, earlier in this chapter, the one mediator between God and man has been identified as the man Christ Jesus, who of course became a human being by being born of a woman. Further in the context of Paul's reference to the Creation in the fall, recalling Genesis 2 and 3, and further reference to the coming of redemption through the woman's seed, recalling Genesis 3.15, it would be most apt to understand that if Mary had not given birth to the Christ child, there would have been no salvation for anyone. No greater honor has ever been given to woman than than the calling of Mary to be the mother of the Savior of the world. So we'll just go with that. That's what verse 15 means. Alright? So clearly, this passage is not saying that women must bear children in order to be saved. He's not saying that. If Paul believed that, he would have said it over in 1 Corinthians 7, and rather than encouraging some women to be single, he would have said all of you should be married and have children. But he doesn't say that. So, we're going to go with, only God knows what this means, but it's also pointing to the fact that a Savior would be born through Mary, Mary, His mother. And it's an honored position. So, we're going to go with that. So, how do we land the plane? How do we land a plane to a very difficult text? It's been a bumpy ride all along the way. I've read a lot, and you've been like, oh, he's used a lot of big words. That's because I don't want to screw up. Alright? So, we have some congregational corrections. We have some role descriptions. Now let me just talk to you from my heart. Here's some pastoral reflections. Theology. Here at Mosaic, we embrace a biblical understanding of men and women. That both have equal value, worth, are were created with dignity. That they are image bearers, that they reflect the glory of God. And that we do that in very distinct ways. So because of that, here in Mosaic, we're going to embrace a theology that values men and women. We're going to value both. That means every single man in this room, every single woman in this room, every single boy, every single little girl, we're going to treat them with value and dignity. And we're going to do that in a way that's charitable, humble, and has open hearts and open ears, listening. Number two, philosophy. We embrace what is called complementarianism. I don't have time to unpack all of that, but we're not going to do it in a patriarchal way. There are a lot of complementarians who are jerks. Okay? And this simply means this, that we say we value women, but our practice actually says something different. So we're going to wrestle with this. We don't have this all figured out here at Mosaic, but we're going to, in charity and humility, consider others more important than ourselves and try to seek ways to value women. Our culture is designed and set up to not value women. So we don't want to transpose that into the life of our church. We don't want to try to demean women or push them to the side or say they only can serve in kids' ministry. We want to do it in a way that values them. And it's going to mean that we're probably going to mess up at times. It's going to mean that we sometimes disagree. But we're going to try to embrace a biblical value that says that women are valuable. They're valuable. Paul says in other places in the Scripture that women are prophesying, they're praying, they're helping, they're serving, they're equipping, they're teaching, they're spreading the Gospel. So we want to provide spaces for women to do the same thing here. One writer said this, the fields of opportunity are endless for the entire church to be mobilized in ministry, male and female. Nobody is to be at home watching Netflix, barefoot and pregnant, while the world burns. 
What does that mean? Every single one of us has value. We have a responsibility. So theology, we embrace biblical manhood and womanhood. Philosophy, we're complementarian, but we want to do it in a way that values other people. And then practice. We want to move away here at Mosaic, away from fear-based decisions where other people either inside our church or outside of our church might be confused by what we do. I just see so many. When I read the commentaries, I'm like, they're trying to talk to the people they agree with. And we want to move away from that. We want to faithfully study the Scriptures and not base our decisions on fear, but choose love and sound minds based upon what God says. In practice, we want to seek to include women in leadership outside of the elders and pastors because that's the restriction. And we want to do it in a way that values their opinion. So I want to give you a really practical thing and then I'm going to land the plane. So every week when I put my sermons together, I send my outline and what I'm going to talk about to the elders of our church, I send it to the people who are in the sound booth so that they can put the slides up and if I did it, it would look even worse and crazier than it does now. So there are people who are gifted to do that. So, so I, I give that to them to do, but I also do that because I hope they read it and they say, hey, that seems a little off. Have you thought about this? So I want to submit to that, but in that, I don't just send it to men in our church. I send it to Dara, who leads our kids' ministry. And there are times when she's sent input back because I value her opinion. I I send it to my wife and I say, would you please read over this and make sure I'm not a heretic and correct me. This morning, my wife texted me. She's out of town with our kids and she said, hey, I'm praying for you. Hey, there's this one spot. I'd be really careful right there. And hopefully I was. So I want to value women. This means that we have to work hard as pastors and elders to not just sit in a room and make decisions on our own, but to bring in women voices into our meetings at times and to hear how the decisions that we're making might affect them. It means we value them. This means practically in our homes we have to practice this, Mosaic. We have to practice this. This means, husbands, when you need to make a big decision, do not make it on your own. This means when you are planning for your family and the size of your family and all of that, that you don't just do that on your own, you do that together. This means when God is maybe calling you to move somewhere, men, for your job, that you don't do that on your own and just drag your family along, but rather you value the voice of your wife and you pull her in and you include her in the decisions. This is what it means to believe that women have value, dignity, and worth. And it means lots of other things that I didn't even talk about. So this should be true not only in this house, but in our homes. We value each other. And ultimately, I think this is what gets us to the Lord's Supper and brings us to the truth that Paul bases all of this in, and that is the Gospel of Jesus. He says this in verse 5 of chapter 2, There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. See, Paul doesn't say this out of nowhere. He roots his argument in the gospel that Jesus is the God-man who came to forgive us of our sins through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. See, he loves us. He loves you men. His blood was shed for you. His body was broken for you. Men, he loves you. Women, His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. He doesn't restrict His forgiveness and salvation to you simply because you are not a man. In fact, we see Jesus 
when he's risen from the dead, the first people he shows up and reveals himself is to women. I read this yesterday. I thought this was so beautiful. In the Bible, in the scriptures, men often go to the mountain to encounter God. And God shows how much he values women by showing up to where they are. Why? Because they have all kinds of responsibilities that would have kept them from going to the mountain of God. Right? They're at home caring for children. They're washing clothes. They're running businesses. And so God finds them. When Mary shows up at the tomb, right? And she's there. She's actually doing a job a woman would do, which is to prepare the body for burial. She's performing a job. And in the midst of her job, God finds her. He shows up and he interacts with her. And we see so clearly how much God values women because he reveals himself as the risen Savior first to them. So even in the gospel, even in the good news, we see just how much God loves each of us. And so this morning, I hope you walk away from today not with a theology lesson, not with a philosophical or theological position, but coming face to face with the Savior who loves us, who has designed us intentionally, specifically, male and female, image bearers of God, meant to be in relationship with Him. Let's pray.